0: It's about time that your mind took a
1: Welcome Blues to the Bolt from the Blue podcast and we're here to talk about two games. The first one is our most recent one, the one that you've just seen. We're pretty quick off the mark as the, the game's not long over. Sheffield United nil, Manchester City one, rescued by Sergio Aguero as we almost were in the preceding game. But uh, as usual, I have got two Battle season, battle-hardened blues with me to talk about it. And the first one is Mr. Colin Savage. Colin, how are you doing? Yes, I'm good, thank you. Watched the game from the comfort of, of the living room, did we? Yes,
2: yes, unfortunately, yeah. And I was at um, I was at City for a meeting kind of late morning, lunchtime, and everyone's rushing off to go to Sheffield and I'm going home to watch it on the television. Well, it,
1: it sounds like you might have been uh, in the right place. And uh, also, we have with us uh, Ray from city fan tv on youtube how are you doing ray hi hello mike i'm not so bad a little bit
3: tired tough few days city certainly have put us uh, through the ringer and over the last few days and the last two games but uh, hey the latest result is a win so i've got a
1: smile on my face we were put through the the ringer there a little bit colin opening question raheem sterling does he need a holiday in the sun
2: Uh, Yes, he does, I think. Um, He had a little bit of a break, didn't he? Came back against uh, Crystal Palace on Saturday and for the first few minutes he looked quite sharp. And then, you know, he disappeared into the grey nothingness that he seems to have been occupying. Just wasn't in the game. Um, Mares must have a bad back from carrying him through 90 minutes. I mean... He's not having a good time at all. We know what he can do. Let's give him some credit. He never stops. He never gives up. He never hides. You think about Edin Dzeko, things weren't going for him, he
1: wouldn't be interested. You can't say that about Sterling, but his touch has deserted him at the moment. What do you think is at the the heart of this problem? I saw one particular tweet that was quite enlightening, where the poster said that he just despaired every time um, Raheem got the ball, and the only time he ever had he ever seems to have confidence with uh, Sterling at the moment if, is if the ball is rolling across the face of goal and he only has to tap it in. What do you think?
3: I, I, I can't put my finger on it. I've I've said it almost every game since probably, I reckon, sometime in September. I've And I've said his decline seemed to start after the first international break. He was on fire. He was sensational. And... Uh, The first trip away with England, he was great for England as well. And people were talking about Raheem Stilling as possibly right there and then being the best player in the world, or certainly in the top three. And I don't know if that's something that's gone to his head, because after that, he started to uh, go on the decline. Yes, he scored some goals, he got some tap-ins. He still did the odd uh, bits and pieces for us, but of late, his contribution to games is just effort, and that's it. Um, but there's, there's absolutely no end products. He's, you know, trying to. In the past, you'd see him trying to dribble past players or try and beat them for pace, just slap the ball past them and try and beat them for pace. And now I saw one moment today where he tried to get, you know, stand somewhere up and tried to knock the ball past him to chase it. And he just kicked the ball into the player so many times today because he just made mistake upon mistake upon mistake uh, throughout the game. And. And the one moment of real genuine skill that he displayed when he took a couple of players on did a very neat one too. Um, he had a great chance to score and then he dragged his shot wide. So all in all, uh, another poor performance for me. I don't know what it is. As Collins alluded to, I don't know what Bernard, what Bernardo Silva has done wrong, why he's not playing. And, and personally, I, I'm, I'm sure you'll talk about the lineup, but. Personally, I'd have had Gabby Jesus out on the left, and Aguero up front, and Bernardo in the middle for effort and you know for the running around of Bernardo. But I think Gabby Jesus would have offered us more than Sterling. And Gabby Jesus is not you know or, 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 he blows hot and cold himself, but I just think he offers more on the left than Sterling right now.
1: Ah, uh, Gabriel Jesus, king of the penalty takers. Well, let's go through this um, this lineup, and um, I'm going to purposely leave out one name because that's going to be the the next uh, topic of conversation. But we had uh, Ederson in goal, Fernandinho Otamendi. Then we had a chap who was um, substituted by Garcia on 78th minute, but we'll get on to him. Walker De Bruyne Rodri Zinchenko Mares Sterling, who, as as, uh, Colin comically pointed out, was substituted by Bernardo Silva 90 minutes too late (laughs) for many people and um, Gabriel Jesus, who was subbed for Sergio on 67th Minute. And, of course, the name I've left out is The Welcome Return of the Door, which translates to La Porte, and he was on for 78 minutes. Colin Savage, what did you think of his first showing after that enormous layoff?
2: Well, the one obvious thing to say is we kept a clean sheet. He looked just as immaculate. I I wasn't expecting him back quite so soon, actually. I thought... He, uh, you know, we might see him in a couple of weeks. See Laporte warming up. I assumed he was on the bench. So when I saw the team, obviously I was delighted, but a little bit nervous
1: because obviously you hope that he's not being rushed back. It was great to see Laporte back, but about 10 minutes in, one of a number of filthy tackles came in and and had a few of us... um... Worried uh, slightly, the Sheffield player mm. got, got a bit of the ball, but he wiped out Laporte, and it was uh, dicey moments there for a while, wasn't it? One of one of three or four dirty yeah. tackles coming in from the Sheffield United players.
3: It was more Besic, uh, the ex-Everton player, the uh, guy from uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, I think. Um, I, I didn't think he got the ball, and uh, that for me is one of those kind of tackles which is kind of between a yellow and a red card which generally the referees give us a yellow. It's a funny thing about Laporte, I mean, mean, and we might come on to this subject area later when we talk about the Palace game and um, some of the criticism directed at some players. But I've been saying for a few weeks now, several weeks, that I was targeting either this game or the Fulham game or the next round of the FA Cup because I was talking about this before we'd even got past Port Vale. Uh, that I was hoping that Laporte would maybe get a few minutes at the end of the game. And like Colin said, I was surprised that he started. I, I knew he was in the, uh, he'd come off the coach, and I thought, yeah, okay, he'll be on the bench, and maybe if we get a few goals up, he'll come on. We'll give him five minutes. So I was surprised uh, that he started. But what also surprised me, he made some mistakes at the start, which uh, a lot of people on social media haven't commented about. There was uh, a, a really poor pass. Uh, that g- give the ball to Sheffield to United, um, which resulted in a flick round the corner. Laporte stepped up to play the guy offside. He got it wrong, and the Sheffield United player was uh, was through on uh, wide. So he, I think, he made uh, in the first ten minutes three mistakes. Not massive, but three mistakes that some other player, if somebody else had made them, he'd have got battered. On social media, for but after that, he was he was very good. That that foul aside, that terrible, it was a terrible tackle um, where he was left clutching his ankle, and there were worries um, that he, he might have done a more serious injury than um, you know just a, 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 an impact injury. It's quite fun, not funny, silly uh, that the the commentator said. I hope this is a recurrence of his old injury, which, off the top of my head, I. I I thought it was his knee that had gone not his ankle but anyway um maybe I need to do more research than the
1: commentators I'm not sure they they do that much but um
2: I think that tackle was deliberately designed to hurt him and I think that was a red card
1: Colin um, most reports have described uh, Sheffield United's performance as a gutsy gutsy is not a word that I've seen in, in quite a while is that what is that how you saw it perhaps the word
2: it's a bit extreme but i'd use the word cowardly because they can play a lot better than that and and they were quite industrial as we said they got men behind the ball they did what crystal palace did on saturday so i i thought it was um yeah a little bit of a cowardly performance from sheffield united but i, I guess i understand why
1: yeah ray much have much has been made of of this goalkeeper that they have, who's unknown from Manchester United, probably mm. their their player of the, the oh. their their player of the match from their point of view.
3: Absolutely, um, I mean, the fella made a, a, a very very good save from Raheem Sterling after about 19 minutes, where actually I think we should have scored, where there was a mistake by Basham on the halfway line. He, he get, I think, he gave the ball to Sterling. We passed it a, one or two passes, came back to Sterling. Maris put a very juicy ball through to Sterling, and Sterling should have been stroking that home. And he hits it at a high that the goalie could save it, but the goalie still had to make a very, very good save. Um, And then, obviously, there was a penalty save, which uh, I'm sure we'll talk about the penalty later. So he saved from the penalty. Uh, Once again, a a, a shot that was a a decent high for him to save. But he he made the save. And um, and a couple of other uh, decent saves. He had an overall, I think, a a pretty good game. And let's be honest, he kept them in it. Um, Those two clear-cut chances that we had in the first half uh, that he he, he saved. Uh, and and I think, you know, that, that was the difference between us coasting the game because I think if we go up 2-0 in the first half, that game is almost dead and buried in the second half. We can coast. They they have to push out and, and try. And I think we can score a third and a fourth. Uh, but uh, Henderson really did keep them in that game. My observations, obviously, there was that um, great chance for Sterling that he missed. And we, we talked earlier about that tackle on Laporte, which... I've described as between a yellow and a red. There was another incident on 23 minutes, which uh, resulted in a a yellow card. Now, it's that sort of incident that, once again, I say it was between a yellow and a red. uh, It deserved more than a yellow. And if there were sin bins, it should should have been a long sin bin offence because what happened was Norwood tried to uh, knock the ball um, on. He was was probably around the halfway line and um, he inadvertently hit it to Sterling. uh, And I think Sterling knocked it past him. Now, Norwood only had one defender behind him and the keeper. City at that moment would have, uh, if, uh, and when Norwood, what he did, he he grabbed all the Sterling, Sterling went down, uh, and Norwood got booked. But if if Sterling had got free, City had three players bursting into the um, Sheffield half, and Sheffield United had one defender. So we, in effect, would have had three against one uh, before the, the keeper, and you'd have, you know, really, you'd have expected City to score. So Norwood made that, obviously, professional foul. He took the yellow card. For me, that was worth more than a yellow card. That was worth a a sin bin or something. Um, But not long after that, someone you wouldn't expect to see in the opposition box, unless it was a a corner or a free kick, was Nicolas Otamendi. And uh, it was a cracking uh, half-overhead, half-scissors kick. Um, and the connection he got, I mean, it was it was almost perfect. And in fact, it's probably too perfect because it went straight uh, at the keeper who managed to save with his legs. And if he slightly miscued it, like Wayne uh, Rooney did many years ago and he shinned it in past Joe Hart, if he'd got a slightly poor connection... If it would gone one or two yards either side of the keeper, I think that was a goal, and it would have it would have been a fantastic goal, great for Otamendi. He's taken a bit of stick in recent weeks. He's had a couple of uh, poor performances, um, but yeah, that that was good. I mean, I, I, I'm just going through my notes. We talked a little bit about Sterling already, and you know, you you obviously, might you've heard of uh, King Midas, and well, you wish I had his touch because um, everything he touched turned to gold, and. Raheem Sterling has got the, I'm trying to think of a a, a pun here, but he's got the turdus touch because everything he touches, it it just is absolutely rubbish at the moment. Then obviously we had that penalty. Maras, you know, I think, look, he, he won the penalty. He got through three players. I think it was a mix of skill. And a bit of a rampaging bull as well, which is not really like Mahrez. And I, I brought in my notes, why the hell is Jesus taking penalties? He's missed, I think, every penalty this season. Two for City, one for Brazil. He's missed now six of his last ten penalties. The one in the Champions League for yeah, City. Yeah, I
2: saw that, yeah.
3: It was way, way wide. And, you know, he he never looks confident I mean, I'd rather have somebody who looks confident, strides up and misses than someone like Gabby Jesus, who doesn't look confident, takes one stride, tries to um, dummy the keeper a bit, you know, uh, fool him by taking a a start and a stop and then gives him something to save that's actually not that difficult if he's gone the right way. So it was a disastrous penalty. And I was thinking, you know, I'm tempted. I I thought that we did this in, in the Champions League game. I thought at one moment in that game, when it was Gabby Jesus going to take the penalty, I thought we were going to bring Ilkay Gundogan on to take the penalty instead. And, it, and right now, you know, I, I miss having someone like Yaya Turi or Mario Baratelli or Ilkay Gundogan on the pitch. Uh, you do need somebody on the pitch who is going to score pretty much every single penalty he takes. Um, apparently, the best penalty... Well, I'll ask you both, uh, if you've not heard Pep's press conference, uh, then you might not get this right. Who do you think is the best penalty taker at Man City? Edison. Yeah, it's Edison. But obviously, Pep uh, won't let Edison take penalties. Um, you know, but we have to do something. We have to do something because we need somebody who is like Yaya Turi. Every single penalty he took, he scored. Balotelli for City. I think, did he score every single one or every single one bar one or something? Yeah. You need someone like that. You need someone like Ilke Gundogan, who the last penalty he took for City, even though the goalkeeper went the right way and possibly could have saved it, he got a hand to it, but he hit it well enough to still go in. So you need somebody who's every single time is going to put that ball in the corner. And if the goalkeeper is going to save it, he's going to have to make it a, an, an unbelievable save to get across, or he's going to have to cheat like Henderson did tonight.
2: Well, it's not, you know, it's it's a skill you can practice, isn't it? You know, yeah. you, I know was like kicking a ball is a bit of a thing, but you, you can practice penalties and putting it in, you know, low in the bottom corner or high in the top corner. We've seen where, where Jesus has put them and where Sterling has put them in that space where it's so easy. You know, mid-height, halfway between the goalkeeper and the post or too close to the keeper. Yeah and and you've got you you know you've got to be doing better, better than that as a professional footballer you know you you're kicking the ball from a standing position it's not as though it's moving you've got you've got comf- full control of the situation you've got to be doing better
1: it's interesting isn't it uh, isn't it guys because um when gabby j stepped up for that penalty we were kind of a lot of city fans were hoping that uh, pep would do a, you know, a Louis van Halen and substitute him off and bring on someone who could actually take one. But it's uh, it's not only it's not it's, it's not only penalties, Ray. It's corners as well. I mean, a lot of people were making the point, and it's been made um, again and again and again that uh, when City get awarded a corner, they might as well just pass it straight to the opposition goalkeeper because yeah. nothing ever happens from it. There Seems to be no tactic or no particular well, uh, strategy they, there at all. The opposition
3: generally they've come to the opinion that they don't care if they give us a corner because that's actually. A dangerous position for them because we're more likely to lose the ball from a corner and a, a team goes up the other end and gets a chance to score than we are a scoring ourselves. I mean, there was a start off the uh, going back early in the season where we had something like about 120 odd corners and we would scored one goal. That's pathetic. That it really is pathetic for. I um, mean, you know, if you were bottom of the league and you'd got that record, you'd say there's something wrong. The manager's not. It's the manager and the and the coaches. And so you've got to pin this on Pep. Uh, Sadly, I've got to say, you know, I don't believe anybody's beyond criticism as long as it's justified. And Pep keeps picking Gabby to take the penalties when he's obviously not scoring. And we're obviously doing something wrong from taking corners because we're not even generally. I think there were two corners that I can remember us winning tonight and both of them were Rodri Um, who's a decent, you know, decently tall chap, just over six foot. Um, And he won them at the near post and hit them um, over at the far post. So, um, But when you see other teams against us, and I I don't buy this that we're a small team. So it's not, you know, if we put the ball in the air in the box, it's, you know, we're not likely to win it. And when other teams do it against us with our small players, it's a problem. We've got enough players, especially when we send up our defenders, people like Rodri, People like Otamendi or Stones, we've got and Walker or whatever. We've got enough players to cause um, opposition trouble. And it is it is it is really poor because it's potentially costing us a few goals um, a season. You know, if you're going to get, let's say, I have no idea how many corners we're going to take this season. But I will suggest it's going to be somewhere around 250, 200 to two fifty. And if you're going to score two or three goals at two hundred and fifty corners, what's the point? Like you said, we at two hundred and fifty corners, I'd expect something like fifteen goals. I think that's a you know reasonable. I'm giving no scientific backup for that, but I'd expect fifteen to twenty, even twenty goals. If you've got that many corners, you should be scoring, and you should be giving yourself better up, you know, chances and from a dead ball situation, we should be doing far, far better.
1: We should indeed. In fact, um, it seems to be one of the things that uh, Pep doesn't practice. Of course, as city fans know, he famously said that he doesn't practice uh, or or coach uh, tackles. And a couple of Twitter wags uh, said halfway through that first half, they could certainly see why that was true, but uh, it it appears that they don't seem to be, um, or there's no um, evidence of, of great planning for these uh, corners. And, um, you're absolutely right, uh, Ray, it's a, a pretty poor yield from the amount of corners that uh, City get. But in that first half, uh, Colin, it, it was uh, the same feeling I got as the one against uh, a Palace of pretty pictures. But um, just the, the likeliest man, as I think you uh, hit on earlier, was uh, Maris, And uh, where Sterling has gone down, uh, has has sort of risen up in equal measure. He looked probably our most dangerous threat...
2: Uh, absolutely he did. I mean, even Kevin De Bruyne was having a bit of an off night. A lot of his passes weren't particularly coming off. Um, normally, obviously, so immaculate. But um, yeah, and Maros was carrying a lot of the burden in that, certainly in the first half. Again, it comes back to Sheffield United had parked the bus to a large degree. And I think that the player we've got who is best able to break that down is Phil Foden, because he will run at players. And the best way to break down a a solid defensive formation is to run at people because then, if you run at people, you pull people out of position, as we've said. You run past a midfield player, you might pull a defender towards you. That will create a bit of a, a gap in behind that defender and we're so good at exploiting those gaps. So, um but, you know, when you get Raheem Sterling running into blind alleys and you know, kicking the ball against opposition players, you're not making that. Uh, you're not making those runs. But Morris was doing that and um, that, that's what we needed more of. I think there was just
3: one, one more thing. I think there was a tackle in that first half on Fernandinho, which was a late tackle by, I think, Fleck. I gave that tackle, but, you know, the severity of it, you know, once again, I said that I thought that's somewhere between a yellow and a red, uh, that tackle. And actually, I put Fleck in my, uh, he's in my fantasy team. Um, I made a mistake when, when uh, we played them the first time. I, I chatted with a fellow called Callum, a Sheffield United fan. He works on the radio uh, covering there. Um, their matches and I asked him which player should I put in my team from Sheffield United who were good value and he said Fleck and I didn't put him in the last round of games where he scored against Arsenal He got a very good return of 10 points so I thought put him in even though it's City and when he made that tackle on Fernandinho I thought okay he's going to get sent off here and um, you know my knee-jerk reaction by putting him in for this game after he scored a goal the last time is going to cost me some points that's how bad I thought the tackle was and it's another one that, you know, he walked away with a, with a, a yellow card. And I think Fernandinho was given a little bit of retribution as well because he put three, you know, robust challenges in himself and he ended up getting carded. And I think the, the commentator said, and, it looked, and a lot of City fans were saying, you know, the way we were playing, um, they thought Fernandinho would get his matching orders in, in the game. But unfortunately, yeah,
1: that, he didn't. That's what I was going to say. There was a reaction from the Sheffield United fans, a pretty throaty, a uh, reaction when when Norwood got what got yellow carded for a, a tackle on um, or a foul on Fernandinho because of course Fernandinho got away with about th- three times without um, just giving that cheeky little smile that he does and gets away with it. Uh, obviously, this was the height of hypocrisy um, from the, the opinion of the Sheffield United fans. But um, yeah, guys, moving into that uh, second half seemed to be more of the same, a, a more frustration. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, this is uh, Crystal Palace all over again. It seemed to be going that way. It was until a certain substitution was made that uh, made the difference or almost made the difference in the last game. What did you think, Colm?
2: Yeah, well, Sergio came on. And um, he's a bit Jimmy Greaves of Sergio in some ways, isn't he? Um, You know, if he'd been on from the start, he can can spend – Long periods of the game, as you did against Palace, not doing very much, and then give him the chance, and he'll he'll go into action and put the ball in the back of the net. As Jimmy Greaves, those are those of us old enough to remember Jimmy Greaves. That was a very um, trademark game of his. And it's also interesting that Kevin De Bruyne finally found his passing range uh, for that goal because um, you know it, again it was it wasn't uh, the, the sort of pass that uh you know he did fasale against uh, against stoke a few seasons ago and uh, he did the other week but um yeah you know, it, it was a neat little pass into sergio and sergio doesn't miss those
1: exactly um I, i'm tr- i'm struggling to think about uh, too many other incidents in that um, second half but um ray has a whole list of them uh,
3: oh yes <laughs> uh, i've got to be honest um, for about 30 minutes i didn't make a single no. For uh, in that game because it, it was it was pretty uneventful. But on 62 minutes, and you remember this when I, when I tell you there was some, a, some very good play by Chef United. Uh, actually, I, I've written great play from Sheffield United. I think they they put the ball across the box and um, one of their players hit the ball wide from in front of in front of the goal. A little bit later, we had another sterling moment where I, he, he should have really been putting the ball into Gabby Jesus. Um, and well, you know, there were, I think it was basically two against two. Sterling was out wide, and he hit. i written and a horrendous cross, way you know, high, wide, and handsome. Uh, and 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 I thought the longer this game is uh, goes on, the more lackluster City looked. And then Sheffield United had another chance uh, just before Aguero scored. I think it would have been offside. And then the, obviously the the Aguero goal that was fun fantastic from KDB. I mean, he actually hit the ball through the um, defender's legs uh, as he crossed it in. There's no, it's 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 just that, as Jeff Boycott, you see, it's that corridor of uncertainty. It's in that area where the goalkeeper can't come out to get it and the defender can't get back quick enough yeah, to I think prevent s- it going through s- someone,
1: someone on Twitter said that actually Kevin De Bruyne is single-handedly responsible responsible for changing that little that little slogan from the corridor of uncertainty to the corridor of certainty because wow. he just manages to it get is, it he manages to get it yeah. like he he bisects the goalkeeper and um the defenders uh, in and th- there's basically nothing you can do about it.
3: Well, th- th- exactly right, absolutely right. I mean, he's Fantastic player. That's 15 assists in the league this season. It's an incredible number of assists. Sterling, 88 minutes, another chance wasted. Um, and then Edison, I've got to mention Edison because I was disappointed with Edison. He's he's kicking. You know, He's made some mistakes in recent weeks. He's made some mistakes this season in and, and deciding when to come out uh, and getting it sometimes wrong. Uh, I mean, he was lucky the, against Palace. We'll talk about that. He was lucky when he came out once there. He's making mistakes. He had three kicks in quick succession in that second half. And he put two long ones. I think they're all from the left-hand side of, of the goal. Two that he was hitting across field to the right uh, wing, they went out. And one he hit to the uh, right-back walker, which went out as well. So, And I think part of that is because he's got no competition. Uh, Claudio Bravo is no competition for Edison. And, you know, I think he'd do Edison uh, a world of good to know that he has has to keep looking over his shoulder because you can't put, you know, some of the performances he's put in and made the mistakes he's made. You can't keep doing it. He's getting away with it most of the time. You know, he needs... A proper competition at number two, which hopefully he will have next season. Will get someone better than Bravo?
1: Well, I think the most gratifying thing, Colin, about this whole experience uh, this evening was the result. And uh, looking at the league table, it seems that um, we've got a bit, uh, a bit of good fortune. Chelsea dropping points, United being duffed two 0 by Liverpool, Leicester as well uh, dropping back further. So, in our quest to cement second place and, and absolutely cement top four this is, uh, this is pretty much as, as close to um, uh, certainty as it is Liverpool winning the, the, the title but um, the, the teams below City are, are beginning to fall away in a, in a way I think that some had predicted what did you think of, of this latest set of um, results from the teams between three and six the cliches it's a poor quality league but uh, you could also look at it
2: in a way that any team can beat any other team and um, a, a lot of the teams below us and Liverpool are very evenly matched. Now, I, I, I always look at the gap between the the team in, in fifth and the team in 17th. And that currently is just 11 points. And I don't think it's ever been that few points in, at any time in the history of the Premiership well, after this number of games.
3: Well, you can go down to 19th because 19th is the difference between 19th yeah, and fifth 11, is 11 yeah, points.
2: Yeah, 11 points. So... It's an incredible league. You you could say it's poor quality, but you could also say it's an incredibly close league. But if if you put three wins together, you can be in you know you can go from the bottom three to the European places. Oh, well, look at Watford. Watford yeah. got a few wins uh,
3: on the spin, and they got themselves well out of the bottom three. They got to about thirteenth position or fourteenth or fifteenth, whatever it was. And then they drew one and lost one, and now they're back down to 19th, because Bournemouth managed to win, Villa managed to win, uh, I think Burnley got a win uh, at the weekend, and and suddenly Watford were looking like they were on the up,
2: they're now back in the bottom three. The annoying thing about it is, it's given Manchester United, opened the door to United to get possibly the top four players, which... That would kind of prove it's a poor quality league. You you could say if United get a top four place, because at the start of the season it didn't look like they were going to get a European place at all. But again, things could turn around after you know tomorrow night, Thursday night. Things could turn around. They could find
1: themselves in you know seventh or eighth position or something like that. This game wasn't a classic, where well, I think everyone can admit that. But um, I think we should go back a little bit to the uh, the Crystal Palace game. There was another game. Uh, very, very f- frustrating, and um, as is the case in so many games, Palace took the lead on on 39 minutes. This was um, Cahill beating John Stones for a header, and uh, as Ray, I think, pointed out on his channel, we shouldn't get too much stuck into uh, John Stones because there was basically uh, two people on unchallenged on, on the line to to score that goal. It was Chink Tossen who scored the goal, and uh, this brings us in into this uh, little debate. Uh, Ray, about uh, John Stones. You have been defending him and I well, have been attacking mm-hmm.
3: him. <laughs> well, I've got, not, I've got to say, what, what I've defended John Stones on is where people have, you, have scapegoated him, blamed him, when actually, uh, you know, for more than what's his fault. I'll give you an example. I did get a comment uh, that just came up uh, a few minutes ago on my uh, timeline. It's basically talking about the money we paid for uh, Stones. He said... And it puts a nice capital in here. He said Stones was at fault for both goals. Out jumped for the first, jumped in and collided with Cancelo on the second. Okay. So, yes, he was out jumped for the first goal. But if Cahill had scored from the header and Stones hadn't jump, jumped, I would have said something about Stones making a big mistake. But Cahill headed the ball across the goal for Chen Chosen to head in. There was another guy with Chen Chosen unmarked. So, that's if you're going to look at that um, corner and where our big feelings were. Well, our biggest feeling was having two men at the near post unmarked after the head, ball was headed across. That's the basic reason we conceded a goal. And then, so this was a nice long comment, which I won't go bore you with, but he said then he let Zaha bully him and called him an average defender and other stuff and said Guardiola's got no other options. Guardiola has got other options. Guardiola could pick Eric Garcia. I'd like to see more of him. Every time Eric Garcia plays... Again tonight after the game, Eric Garcia didn't play too long. He played about, he came in after, I suppose, like, 78 minutes when Merit departed and was, was knackered, basically, and looked like he had a bit of cramp. And Garcia played really well. There was one excellent block very late on where Cross was coming in. And he, put his, he put his body on the, on the line, you know, sliding across uh, to, to block a cross right at the death. And Pep said, you know, basically he, you know, he plays very good every time he plays. He never lets us down, and he's just so good. So Pep does have other options. But and the, the one where people blame Stones for the second goal against Palace, I take, te- you know, I take them to task and say, hang on, there were many other failings in that goal. You had Edison leathering the ball long, okay. When we've been we've been playing it, you know, uh, control um, build up from the back. We're winning two one. It's the last minute of the game. I discussed this with Colin last night. Um, it, you win in two-one, so you launch the ball up. KDB loses the ball. I think I, I can't remember how Colin described him, but he, he didn't put enough of a tackle well, well, in.
2: You, yeah, I, because we were laughing about this last yeah. night and saying, you know, when you go on one of these health and safety, so you do one of these online health and safety courses when you start a new job, or and uh, you, you'll get a picture of a workspace and there'll be um, cables in the way and there'll be boxes. There'll be carpet tiles up and and stuff like that, you know, and it says, identify five hazards from this picture, five uh, potential hazards from this picture. I'm watching that Crystal Palace equalizer. I think I've got a list of uh, where is it now seven mm. mistakes so seven things you could d- describe as mistakes so, so number one was, why did Edison take a, an aimless long goal kick? Well, he never does that. You know, we, we, we've got two minutes plus a bit of injury time to see how what Edison should have been doing was playing the ball to Fernandinho or Stones in the area and, and retaining possession, taking the the um, some of the sting out of the game for for because we've done that before. But instead, he waves everyone downfield, launches the ball at no one in particular, and it gets headed back by a Crystal Palace player. So, so that's number one. Then I I think Kevin De Bruyne was far too weak in trying to win that ball. And and to go back to what you said before about Pep, not coaching tackling, I think one of the great things that I saw from Garcia tonight was he came in and put a tackle in. And I, I, it drives me mad that I see balls being win by opposing teams that we should be winning. Um, and, and we're not putting enough... I don't, I don't want to come over all Wimbledon, but we, you know we're not showing enough commitment in the tackle... To, to win even 50-50 balls. And, and again, KDB, I thought, was favourite. 75-25, 80-20 to win that ball when it was heading back. And again, he was very weak. And I know people do criticise Kevin De Bruyne about his tackling sometimes, and I've defended him, but that I wasn't going to defend him for that. And then uh, Rodri was another one who failed to get a tackling. The, the ball fell to him. Again, he could have made, I thought, made more effort to clear it and, and, and should have won the ball, but he didn't. So that's three already. And now Crystal Palace have got the ball. Now, if you look at the, the picture, when the when the Crystal Palace player, I don't know what it is, Cahill or Tompkins or another one, heads the ball back. We're defending a 2 1 lead with two minutes to go. There are eight of our players in the Crystal Palace half. The only one who's back in his own half is Fernandinho. And I think Cancelo was on the halfway line or on or around the halfway line. So we've got at least seven players, maybe eight, on or in front of the halfway line when we're defending a goal lead with, with like, seconds to go. In the meantime, uh, Wilfred Zahar, the danger man, probably danger man, is about 10 yards in front of Cancelo on the wing. So Cancelo is nowhere near Zahar. And, of course, the ball comes to Zahar. Cancelo's saw sort of trying to get back to him. Stones is marking... Um, Tosun, yeah, told- yeah, yeah. So Stones is is doing his job. Where, where I agree with Ray, Stones is doing his job. He's keeping an eye on Tosun. but Cancelo has left zahar uh, footloose and fancy free uh, ahead of him. Not 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 where he can see him. So he's trying to get back. Stones makes the correct decision to go to the man with the ball because that is the right thing to do. And I think I don't think Stones does too much wrong there. Because what he's done is, it, you know, we know what Atamendi would do. Atamendi would go flying in, miss the ball, miss the man, and, and Zahar would be thrown goal. Stones does the right thing. He stays on his feet. He tries to shepherd Zahar to the touchline, which which he does rather. But maybe you could say he's a bit stronger, but I, I don't know. But Cancelo still isn't busting a get back to help him. Because if you've got two men on Zahar, he doesn't get that ball across, I don't think. You know, you you block off the passing lane, or or you allow Stones to cover the goal line, and, and Cancelo covers the ball inside. Cancelo again wasn't busting a gut to get back, so he he was a bit lucky, uh, to Hard because he got he got that ball through Stones' legs. And then, of course, Fernandinho. I think maybe to give him a bit of a, an out, he was under a bit of, a, bit of pressure, I think maybe from but uh, His body shape was all wrong uh, and the way he went about it. But I think Chink Tosin was putting him under a bit of pressure. So so maybe I'll give him a little bit of an excuse. But, you know, the, the seven things I noticed that we could have done better from that in, in the 15 seconds from taking yeah. the goal kick for the ball, hitting the back of the net.
3: Like Colin said, I think, Stones did all right. He did what he should have done. Zaha wanted to come inside onto his right foot to, in, to get into the box to shoot. Stones managed to get him on his uh, left hand side and go towards the byline. Concello was coming back. And then it, at the last second, when Zaha's ready to cross it, Concello just seems to slow down. You know, whether he could have actually cut it out if he'd carried on sprinting hard. And I, I think there's a there's a decent chance that if he carried on sprinting hard when the cross came in, because it wasn't a, a a fantastic cross from Zaha. Cancelo could have been there and, and why we end up with in the, in the 90th minute of the game winning 2-1 how on earth can you have Fernand Junior 1-1 with an attacker we, we brought Rodri on one or two minutes previously to help shore up this game when we were winning 2-1 so what the heck was he doing ahead of the game you know why are we worried why have we got three players trying to support KDB and attacking their players just inside their half I have no idea and as I said, uh, as I repeat, why do we end up with one against one in the box when we're winning 2-1 in the last minute of the game? It is ridiculous. It's negligent. It is it's highly negligent of the of uh, people like Kinsella and uh, I'll throw Rodri in there as well to uh, leave us in that situation because, and I said, did we deserve much more out of the game? Really? Because, you know, I, I felt it was a, another limp, insipid kind of performance. But when you're winning 2-1, you should be seeing that home.
1: That's a, a, a pretty good a diagnosis of that particular goal. But just coming back to, to the case against uh, John Stones, yeah. uh, Ray, it's important, obviously, that we deal with the most powerful arguments, not the low-hanging fruit against Stones in this particular case. By that, what I mean is that picking on Stones for individual goals um, when you know responsibility could be equally shared among a number of players is is just not right i think
3: i've got to say Mike mike he made plenty of mistakes he made some glaring errors don't you say he didn't and i've did that in on my channel i've said you know if you want to criticise... And, and this is what bugs me i say if you want to criticize the manager or criticize the players okay fine but be objective don't be abusive and don't call them this and don't say pen right, right 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 you know, Stones should never play for our club again, and he's rubbish. And you know, and, and, and that's what I am um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm against. I'm opposed to. I say be objective. Yes, criticize Stones. There's plenty. There's plenty to kick, um, criticize Stones for. Uh, the the penalty that I think should have gone against is when he tangled in, in the box. I think that I think that uh, first looking was a penalty. The times he made poor passes. The times he was out of position. I'm happy to say that's what you should, you know, you should call out. Um, not abuse, but call out, you know, these are the
1: mistakes that are, are, are too, they're too big a mistake, really. This is the point. You're certainly right to point out that. But I think from my point of view, the case against Stones concerns his body of work. It's four seasons now, four seasons and under Pep. I don't think he's going to make it. That's my personal view. And yet and yet, you keep seeing these puff pieces and um and and talk about his potential it's a bit too long in the day to be talking about potential for for john stones when he my 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 point of view is that when he's not got a crisis in confidence he's injured uh when he's back in the team he's he makes progress for a certain amount of time and then something goes against him and his head drops And then we're back to square one. And this is a repeating cycle that's been going on for four years. If it was up to me, they should be looking at two central defenders in the summer, not one. I understand where you're coming from, Mike. Um, Pep seems to still like
3: him. I looked at the stats. You know, stats are everything. But last season, and Vincent Kompany said this, uh, said as much himself. He said, you know, I think he he said it's something like he played the first game and then he couldn't get in the team for a month. Uh, was uh, was uh, Vincent because John Stones and Laporte were the future. He said that's, you know, everybody believed that was a future uh, partnership and Stones played the bulk of the um, games partnering Laporte last season. Off the top of my head now, Laporte, I think, played 35 league games. He was involved last season. Stones, I think, was 24. Company and Otamendi were 17 and 18, something like that. Now, I think for the last two seasons, Stones has started the season well, um, and well enough for, for a lot of fans to be convinced that he was the future partnership with Laporte for the next five, six, seven years. And then he's got injured, and then he's come back, and he's not, you know, he, he's a shadow of the former self. So, I, I, and I think Pepper said as well, Stones needs a run of games, and he's not going to get a run of games. If he's getting
1: injured, that's another issue. He's injured again. not only that, Ray. He needs a run of games, not just a run of games. He needs a run of games with Laporte beside him. You stick him beside anybody else and and it's not in any way the same. And if you are totally reliant on that combination for the future, then all it takes is a, a red card for Laporte or a... Uh, an injury yeah, result no, no, for three games and you're back to only, square one? I'm only
3: going on what Pep said. Pep said, to reach his potential, to reach the potential he has, John has to play regularly. I understand, if you're going to make mistakes, you're going to get dropped. And I have said earlier in this season that I, um, I expect Otameni to leave because he's
1: not going to get enough games when Emery Laporte is fit again. But I think there's enough evidence now over four seasons to conclude that John Stones is only as good as the time that he's got Laporte beside him, otherwise he's just too unreliable for a champion-winning team. What do you think, uh, Colin?
2: I I agree with both of you to some degree. I think we said about Stones and Mendy that they've got this the rest of the season, prove they're worth yeah. um, keeping. Now Mendy, I think, is starting to show Touchwood if he stays injury-free that he is worth keeping. So so, so that's great. Stones, mm, yeah. Um, on the one hand, him it's about partnerships. Defensive d- defensive partnerships are about the partnership, not necessarily the individuals, uh, and how they complement each other. And if him and Laporte can stay fit, uh, and they prove to be a good partnership, then I- I'm okay with that, but we need a backup. Uh, we definitely need a backup, whatever, because Officer is going. Uh, Garcia's there. We're hoping he, you know he's looking really good. But I think we need someone else as well. But, but that depends on Stones and Laporte as a partnership. On the other hand, if you're looking at Stones as an individual defender, he really isn't doing what he should be doing. We're not getting the leadership you'd expect from someone of his experience. Now, all right, he's been in and out injured. We, we've we got a decision to make, be made in, in May, June, and a big decision about whether we keep him or not. There's talk of him going to Arsenal. <laughs> I'm very tempted to say he's exactly the sort of player Arsenal need. Oh, he's an Arsenal player because... He is a bit weak mentally, I think we we might say about him. And, and that is Arsenal all over, isn't it? You know, sometimes perhaps you need a move to to reignite your career. I'm dubious about Stones, more so than I am about Mendy. But I'm not, I wouldn't give up on him just yet. Now Laporte is back. Let's give him some time because Laporte made Otto Mendy look fantastic. Can, can Laporte make Stones look fantastic as well and can stones make stones look fantastic so you know we're now in the end of january we've got four more months
1: yeah i i can see that i just i'm not really there there's talk about that we've arrived at the time where you would normally be expecting to give um john stones a, a, another contract now it would I have to say it would depress me if we give uh, this guy another four-year contract or something like this. I mean, but for, you know, by all accounts that that could be very much in the offing, uh, which is slightly depressing for me. But anyway, guys, that that game had been just turned on its head by Aguero too. Lovely goals. It was just so unbelievably frustrating, especially seeing Guardiola going absolutely ape over uh, Aguero's second goal on the 87th minute. Only to toss it away for the reasons uh, that you described there, and seems to be a little bit the story of our season. Too many games like that, and uh, my point of view is, if you look at the Liverpool team and their equivalent of um, of Laporte is Van Dijk, and the people he has uh, beside him, whether it be Matip or Joe Gomez, they're just much stronger uh, characters than than Stones, and that's someone that's the kind of character that we need, in my view, anyway.
3: I think we've got that in Garcia, mm-hmm. uh, and and actually I've I, I tossed and turned with this in, in the last ten days or so to think. Actually, Otamendi I expected to leave, but what about Stones? If we do get somebody top class in the summer, uh, another top class uh, centre back, and we and we keep Fernandinho for another season, could we be in the situation where we've got Laporte, we've got a Other, who's number two, Fernandinho who's number three, potentially Eric Garcia knocking on the door as well. Where does that leave stones? So it, it might end up being best for Otamendi and stones to leave in the summer. It's a bit of a risk to lose your, your experienced players. But, you know, would anybody bat an eyelid if you had Fernandinho in the at centre-back at the start of next season? You know, uh, whilst another good uh, quality 25, 26-year-old defender um, is getting bedded in. And where does that leave stones? So on one hand, you know, Colin, I think Colin's right. We've got to see how the guy plays the rest of the season because, you know, he might have a run of games and suddenly come good and get us through to the Champions League final with that run of games. we just got to wait and see. But that is my fear for Stones. If he gets dropped out of the England squad as well, I can't
1: see him staying beyond next summer, Um, you know, uh, in all honesty. What's the point? The the funny thing that um, some people have picked up on about uh, Fernandinho is that apparently in his contract, he's got um, a clause there that says that if he plays 60% of games, in his his final year, that, that uh, option for a, a year automatically kicks into play. So I'm sure that he will snaffle that, and there seems to be quite a good chance of that, that happening because he's certainly played over 60% of games so far and, and certainly doesn't look to, to be uh, something that's going to change before the end of this season. Um, any word, guys, on how close Leroy Sani is to come back? We know that we're only... Keeping him warm um, for Bayern Munich, I suppose, but I'm um, just wondering um, about that one. My my feeling is, from the
3: things I've read, that I expect him to be training with the boys uh, around the end of the month. Uh, he's training on his own right now, so I, I, I'd expect him to be training with the lads at the end of the month and at the latest, dep- obviously, depending on how it all goes, by the middle of February. Um, we might see him play before that, right? You know, uh, I. I I got it right with Laporte. It's just by going on what Pep's been saying. Um, Leroy Sane was about three or four weeks behind with Laporte in his rehab. So, you know, he's almost on the cusp of getting ready to play with the lads. Once you play with the lads, depends who you are. Mendy needed three to four weeks. Laporte needed a couple of weeks. Maybe Sane might need just a couple of weeks like
1: Laporte. So it could be in three weeks' time uh, Leroy Sane is ready to play and that that i suppose is the um the thing that we're all looking forward to Colin we've got the FA Cup we've got the Carabao Cup we've got the Champions League and um it could be that we'll have um both Laporte and and, and possibly Leroy Sané just uh, just coming coming into a little bit of form at the time when the the closing parts of those competitions are are facing us is that is that your hope too
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, we've said this before on the pod, haven't we? That, uh, yeah, I mean, the first half of the season been a good one for us. But uh, I think we've given, we've all pretty well given up the, the, the league. I mean, there's a little bit of hope in our heart that something drastic might happen to Liverpool and, and, and you know, Mane and and uh, Van Dijk might trip over and train and be out for the rest of the season. But, you know, realistically, Liverpool have won the, are going to win the league. Yeah. They haven't won it yet. But we, we've still got, you know, we're we're only a game away from a Wembley trip. We hope to get to the fifth round of the Eiffel Cup. We're still in the Champions League, obviously, so we can start perhaps to look forward to those games. And perhaps, um, obviously, we don't want to. Uh, you know, we, we talked about the top four and, and results helping us you know, Cup games. are now the games we should be putting our strongest teams out for, of course. Uh, and Sane, and there's no doubt that Sane and Laporte are part, should be part of that strongest team. Uh, and perhaps Sane coming back gives Raheem Sterling a kick up the backside you know, allows us to rotate him a bit more and perhaps that's what uh, that's what we need. We, yes, we're a long way behind Liverpool. We're
3: 13 points behind. They've got two games in hand. What I want to look at is the times we've scored two goals this season and not won games. Now, we were beating Wolves 2-0 after, was it, 54 minutes, beat down to 10 men, but we lost that game 3-2. We scored two goals, we lost. Norwich, we scored two goals, we lost that game 3-2 as well. Bottom place team. Against Newcastle, we scored two goals. And against Spurs, we scored two goals. And we ended up drawing each game 2-2. And we were winning in each of those games. And we had enough chances, I think, to score more goals. Now, just on a, 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 a simple thing and say, if we'd won all those five games where we scored two goals, we'd have had another 12 points. Uh, is that right? Two, four, six, twelve 12 points. We'd, we'd be sat there on 63 points, one point behind Liverpool. Liverpool would still have two games in hand but at least it'd be a title you know and so sometimes people say oh, so-. someone asked me yesterday why are you a, a City I think it was a Sheffield United fan why are you so far off it this season and I don't think we're far off it it's small percentages You know, it's it's those five those five games if we'd won them all in, rather than drawing three and losing two we'd be looking for another 100
1: point season I've got a so theory we- I've got a theory about this Ray have got a theory about this go on man. Well, here it is. Here it is. If you are a team that is fundamentally and primarily based on a high line possession based approach, then you have got to understand that the press is everything to you because you're not really using a defensive strategy. Your defensive strategy is not to defend. And so what has, what has dropped a little bit this season is the vigorousness and the pugnacity, you might say, of that, this whole Pep thing about winning the ball back within five seconds. Now, we have been off, and I think primarily, I'll I'll toss this over to to Colin, but primarily the reason why we have been letting too many attackers in behind us is the absence of Fernandinho in the centre of that midfield. That's what we've lost, and I think that is where a lot of those points, a lot of those points were lost, and um, I'll just throw that over to um, to Colin Savage to see what he thinks.
2: Well, I think that's a point of view that many City fans hold, isn't it? And uh, you know, a, a player like Fernandinho with his uh, clever ability to intercept the ball, to be in the right place at the right time, Rodri's not that yet. Gundogan doesn't have that. G- Gundogan has a lot of benefits going forward, uh, and in terms of in the way that Yaya Touré used to do, dictate the rhythm of the game from, from that kind of number six position. But um Fernandinho is the guy who can do it. He can break up the play. He knows where to be and he can set attacks up again. And I think that's another thing we, we've been missing a little bit is that quick transition from defence to attack. Fernandinho gives us that, doesn't he? I mean, but, you know, I, I think, but the thing is about where Fernandinho is this this season is that we, um I don't know, um c- could he do that job at his age is the question I'm asking really. Um We just don't know, do we? Uh, can, you, can you put him uh, when he's another year older, or two years older, perhaps, than when he played that position? Could we put him back there and get the same out of him? That that would be my concern a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the point because without Fernandinho there, you've got uh, Rodri, who's still learning that side of the game, and uh, the other two in the midfield three are what some people might cynically call Hollywood players in the fact that you've got him. Um, De Bruyne and you've got one of Sterling Marez and these guys are not tacklers and uh, therefore you know you can get through that once you get through that City press or, or what has passed as the City press this season then basically you know a couple of quick forwards and you're in, in on the goalkeeper and you're, you're on a one on one. Guys chasing back as as we saw with uh, Cancelo uh, basically you've, you've given the forward a 10 yard start and yeah. It's basically them through against Aderson uh, and, and more frighteningly, on some occasions Bravo. Um, that that would be my view, Ray. How 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 would you see it?
0: Well, I I I
3: agree uh, with what you guys what you guys have, have said. You know, um, we we've changed. There's no question. I've given this. I have tried to give this time. I'm trying to get the current stat, for the number of passes opposition teams have made against City, and I've said it. Over the last three seasons, it's gone up. So if a team's having more possession, they're going to have more quality ball as well. You know, uh, if you go back to Centurion season, we pressed we pressed like devils the last two seasons. This season, it's dropped off. Uh, Aguero's older, David Silva's older, maybe KDB's less inclined to press as much, wh- whatever the reasons are. And teams have, um, in the past... When they got the ball, they were under pressure. They just used to hoof the ball up. We'd get it back. We'd start uh, passing it around again and building up again. Now, they're having so much more possession. They're creating better opportunities for themselves. And they're putting more pressure on our defence. Uh, and, you know, it, it, our defence is not made for defending. Our defence is made for uh, uh, passing the ball around and starting the attacks. That's why, you know, Pep's uh, Crystal Palace, when we played uh, uh, Salas back. You know, Pep had Rodri and Fernandinho as centre backs because he wanted them to start the 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 attacks much much sooner. Um, So I I, I think, you know, I don't know what how to change that. You know, as Colin said, is Fernandinho going to be too old? I'd like to. A lot of fans want to see him try that again now that Laporte's back. Could we see Laporte and Garcia play and Fernandinho get a few games at uh, defensive midfield just to see how he is, or as a double pivot with Rodri? Um, it's going to be very, very interesting. Another question I want to ask you guys. I want to ask you about Gabby Jesus because against Crystal Palace, well, I think we were losing at the time and he had an opportunity and he and it was on the right-hand side and it was far away from me so on the other end of the pitch. But he um, was kind of through. It was a, narrow, a tight angle but he, he hit the ball way over and wide and, and it was it was obviously so bad that in the highlights packages, you don't see that because it was, you know, it, it, it must have been that bad. But I want to ask you guys, if Gabby Jesus was with us back in 2012, would he have scored that 93-20 goal?
2: You look at that one, two seasons ago at Southampton mm-hmm. and you've got to say, yes, he probably would.
1: Yeah, I, I, can t- I tell you who wouldn't have scored it. <laughs> well, <laughs> would it be yeah. Rah- Raheem Sterling because had too Raheem much Sterling. thinking time. Yeah. Oh, what, what I reckon, what
3: Gabby Jesus would have done, he'd have gone down under the first challenge. Uh, he wouldn't have wrote, in the challenge. He'd have gone down looking for a penalty. Okay, guys, you, you, you've got me at the pa- My last question, last question, um, about Pep. Now, I think against Crystal Palace, Pep warrants a little bit of, um, curious criticism because I think he shoehorned David Silver back into the side. Yeah. Um, and because of that, Bernardo, who had played pretty well in the middle of the park, he decided to play Bernardo out wide, which meant dropping Mares, and he left Gabi Jesus out. Um, now, I think if he hadn't played Silva, he'd have played Bernardo in the middle. would have got a lot more of Bernardo's energy. We'd have played Mares outside, who currently is, along with KDB, I suggest, our best uh, uh, attacking player. Um, and and I think he could have put put Jesus in instead of Sterling because Sterling's been you know bobbins for 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 for, for ages. So do you think the love we have for Silver, especially and Pep, and he's made him captain? Do you think that sentimentality is helping him to put Silver in the side with, to the detriment? And I love Silver, He's my I've said many times he's the best player I've ever seen at City. Um, and he's my favourite player. Um, do you think Schuhon in side is to the detriment of, of the team?
1: Well, I'll take that first. I think that's definitely the case because one of the things I was also going to mention um, about the fact that teams uh, keep getting in behind us is this uh, really frustrating stubbornness that Pep has about not playing Bernardo Silva in central midfield where he is everybody can see that he's uh, a good deal uh, more effective. And um, just on the point about um, criticism of Pep, is that there's a quotation here on the BBC website, which tells you what Pep's philosophy was in the final stages of that game. Guardiola said, and I quote, I told them to keep going, to put more balls into the box, and to try to control Zaha on the counter-attack. So there was no question in Pep's mind of of sitting back or, or, or trying to see that game out, close the game out in the same way that Liverpool have done multiple times uh, this season. So that would be my take a take on it. But uh, with regard to David Silva and this overly sentimental uh, inclination to put him in more games than he should do, I'll throw that over to Colin.
2: The ideal sort of game for David Silva is when we're you know two or three up, you put him in for the last 20 minutes to slow the game down. Because every city fan said the same thing when we saw that lineup on Saturday. Uh, Silva and Gundogan, even though they're not playing exactly alongside each other, you know, Gundogan was playing the number six, silver was playing the number eight, number ten role. It, it's too slow. There isn't enough mobility in that midfield. You know, David Silva had some nice little tricks and flicks, but he's not running games in the way he used to run games. He's not, you know, standing there with the ball at his feet. Being the conductor of the orchestra, he's he's just a he's the guy hitting the triangle these days in the you know the the, the 1812 overture or whatever. So yeah, I, I I don't think it's a good move. You bring David Silver on if you want to bring him on, you you bring him on for the last 15 minutes when when no, you've got a two goal lead and you want to slow the game down, you want
1: more control. So yeah, I, I'm not going to argue with that point of view at all. Can I just pick up on that point about midfield mobility? Now, guys, this would involve a, a radical change from what Pep likes to do. But if you think about it, you need energetic, hardworking midfield players. Now, if you have Phil Foden and Bernardo Silva with an anchor and you play Kevin De Bruyne, who won't give you quite such robustness in the tackles, if you play him him further forward to augment the front line, then you've got a system that I think that would be much more effective hasn't been something that Pep has looked at because Pep has always had Kevin De Bruyne as one of the two eights. So when you play him there you sacrifice a little bit of mobility and a little bit of energy. But my my sort of dream midfield would be to have Phil Foden and Bernardo Silva as the two eights.
3: Yeah. I actually thought but I actually think Bernardo can play that role behind KDB and Phil Foden. I think he can do that because of his energy. And He's going to start attacks quicker and he's learning. I've I've seen he, he played a bit more withdrawn in one of the games uh, over Christmas, I think. And as soon as he'd lost the ball, he put the foul in to take the other card because he knew he had to. So I, he's got, a, he's got a, a very, very good brain on him and I think he can do that. So, I, you know, I want to see him play more. You know, if that means David plays less, well, so be it. I want to see Bernardo play in the middle more. And whilst Mariz is in good form, stick Maras out on the right. That's his position. His Mara's position right now is playing games, not sat on the bench. And and that and that kind of leads into what frustrated me as well by Pep changing so many players so often and changing the tactics. Because we saw against Villa, we changed it around against Villa. You know, we pressed really hard. We played was it three at the back, and we battered them. Once we got ahead, we battered them. Against United, we had a different formation. It was exciting and it it threw them off the guard and we battered them that first half. And I don't understand why Pep went back to the the tried and tested and generally failed notion of going back to the 4-3-3 with Silva, with Gundogan uh, and and KDB there, which is just going to slow it down and give less energy and less bite in midfield. So I don't understand that stubbornness to go back when... The changes he'd made had worked well, worked really well. And I thought this was going to usher in a period of totally, well, okay, I wouldn't say unknown tactics and and setups and strategies, Uh, but things, peculiar ones, things that, you know, we as City fans don't understand and expect. Uh, And if we don't understand and expect them, how can the other teams cope? And I was just hoping that now that Mikel Hatessa had gone, you know, the shackles were off Pep and he was going to come up with some. Weird and wonderful uh, formations keep everybody guessing and uh, keep thrashing teams till the end of the season.
1: Gosh, the, the, <laughs> the idea of Arteta having pep in shackles has conjured up a few <laughs> interesting visual images. But um, <laughs> Well, guys, let's, let's have a look at what's coming up. So on Sunday, Sunday the 26th, 1 o'clock, a home uh, tie FA Cup, fourth round against Fulham. And uh, on the Wednesday... Then another home tie again, of course, the second leg of the semi-final against uh, Man United, who are extremely lucky only to be two down. Now, apparently, as I've just been reminded, um, it's basically like going into this game 2-0 up, isn't it, Colin, because there's no um, away goal rule?
2: That's right, yeah. So it's uh, if it's level on on aggregate after ninety minutes, I think it goes straight to penalties, doesn't it? If I yeah, remember straight rightly, straight to penalties. Given the level of our dominance in the first leg, they really shouldn't, in theory, give us a problem. Uh, United boy. anyway, but of course it's a semi final, isn't it? And um, it, it's it's a one off game, and and we've not been that clever at home, and and the beatles. 2-1. I mean, 2-1 won't be good enough for them, but uh, but I think we've got more than enough mm. to uh, to see us home on that one. Fulham. Uh, now, Fulham on Sunday, they give me more problem because uh, if you look at the championship, the You're two right, teams man. who look to be runaway leaders, West Brom and Leeds, they've only won one between them in the last five games. They've only won one of those games. Uh, and the, the team coming up on the, on the rails is Fulham, uh, who won... Three of the last four games, they only lost one of the last five games. So yeah, yeah, Fulham are doing really, really well. So they will give us a. You know, the, the hope is perhaps they're so focused on the championship race that they might be glad of going out of the FA Cup. I, I don't know, but they will give us a game on on Sunday.
0: Absolutely,
3: absolutely. They're in, they're in top form at the moment. Can, can I also mention two other games? Uh, and I, mean, I know we don't generally get on to talk about women's football, uh, but this Saturday is a Manchester derby. Uh, Saturday the twenty fifth, and that's it's on telly as well. It's on the BBC, but it's I think it's a semi final of the FA Cup, Man United versus Man City, and that's over in Lee Lee Sports Village. Six pounds for adults and three pounds for concessions. So I think that's uh, another game of football that, for once, we can watch the women and the men on the same weekend. Um, It's been a a, a gripe of a lot of people this season where they've had games at this on the same day. Similar times, one home or one away, it's impossible uh, to go. And, uh, and and as if by magic, on Wednesday, the 29th, I think it's Nick Cushing's either last game or second to last game uh, in charge of the women's team before he goes to New York City FC as the assistant manager. And we're playing away against Arsenal in the Continental Cup, which is a league cup. And that just so happens to be on Wednesday, the 29th, which is when we got the semi final against United. So which we've known about for a while. So, it is, you know, I, I put out a message today. It's like they want to cut their own throats. Uh, they're mm-hmm. not trying to promote the women's game because, you know, there'd have been a lot of fans that would have gone to games um, if there weren't these clashes. And it is, it is look, it is, it's daft. It's really silly that we're, we're allowing this, uh, that they're doing this and it's cutting out. It
1: might only be a couple of hundred extra fans, but that can make a difference. And that's a nice little opportunity for me to plug an upcoming BFTB special because um, I've recently been in touch with uh, Dr. Gary James. I've been reading his book on Manchester City Women, and um, I'm going to be doing our second uh, interview with uh, Dr. James about this book sometime next week, as soon as we can get it organised. So that cool. should be Wonderful. that should be very interesting. I'll I'll see if I can I, I, corral any of these lads into doing it with me. But um, what what do you think? I'll, well, yeah, I was,
2: I was going to say, actually, I forgot to say it one of the last podcasts we did because um, in the book, I was looking at the book the other day, actually, and uh, in the book, Gary pays tribute to a lady called Rowena Foxwell. And Rowena was the first captain of that women's team. Mm. And uh, I had the great pleasure of working with her for um, a year. She worked for the Ministry of Justice and I was doing a, a contract there. I was based in London, she was based in Manchester, but occasionally I had to come up to Manchester. And Rowena would always do me a favour and arrange a meeting on the day of a game, a midweek game. So I had the the excuse to um, be up in Manchester for a game. And uh, sadly, it it was a year ago, and I I wasn't aware of this until recently, sadly a year ago, apparently she went to bed as normal and um, never woke up. Uh, And um, that that was a real shock to me when I heard her name read out at the... um, Kind of the, the, before the game where we have we remember people connected with the yeah, club
3: yeah. and was all of us, and um, it's almost a year 27th
2: of January, just last over year. a year, yeah, just a year. And she went uh, to Stop Pot Grammar,
3: if anybody listening went there as well. Stop Pot Grammar,
2: yeah, so it was quite hit me quite hard that because uh, I was saying you were fairly well, and she used to sit in I think 105 104. And occasionally, uh, I go, going on to the concourse after a game, I bump into her and her family. So, um, yeah, yeah, that was sad news. So I look forward to that, yeah.
1: Yeah, so it's a, it's a tremendous book, a, a great education. And that is, uh, that's a BFTB special in the offing, and that'll be coming up uh, as well as, uh, as soon as we can arrange it, the, uh, the third part of our little series on the Franny Lee years, the third and, and final part. That's something, guys, to... Uh, just to, to keep your eyes peeled for as well. As we bring this particular pod to an end, we'll leave it there. As we say, two cup games coming up and uh, City, uh, in, in a good position to win both of them and take us forward. As, as the guys have said, we've got, um, it's, it was great to see, um, Laporte back. We've got Sane coming back. So lots of things to be positive about. Um, and on that particular note, I think we'll leave it, um, just for now. And before we go, We'll just uh, bid farewell to uh, the two other BFTB chaps that we have with us. And uh, the first one that you've been listening to has been Ray. Ray, thank you very much for coming on. Oh, Mike, it's always a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. And also, we have had the King of the Kipax Man and the City Matters Committee member, Colin Savage. Colin, thank you so much for, um, for being on tonight. Oh, it's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, boys. <laughs> yes, indeed, guys. So, there you have it. Uh, we'll be w- with you after the next game. And so, we say, as we always do, have one on us and up the blues. <laughs>
0: That turns you are You saw in a moment, look away in the sky. It's about time that your mind took a holiday.